You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hi, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Here at the Spy Museum, we get the world's most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies and intelligence officers, coming in to answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected author debriefings. So I'd like to welcome back all those who have been tuning into SpyCast in the past, and welcome anyone who is listening for the first time. If you are, please take a second to check out what we've done in earlier podcasts. I think you'll really enjoy it. One part of my job as historian curator of the International Spy Museum is hosting this podcast, but a fairly significant part of my job is also talking to the public about popular representations of intelligence that are shown by Hollywood. Sometimes these are movies, like James Bond, Jason Bourne, and the Mission Impossible series. Sometimes the result of the many TV shows that are on today, or have been on in the recent past, such as Homeland, 24, Alias, The Americans, etc., goes on and on. The reason I bring this up is that Hollywood has given us yet another version of intelligence history. This time, it is Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies, in which Tom Hanks plays attorney James Donovan. Bridge of Spies' plot surrounds the spy trade of American Francis Gary Powers for Soviet spy Rudolf Abel. Our guest today will help us negotiate reality versus fiction. Vin Arthi is a writer, researcher, and speaker who has a very unique perspective on the Abel case. He is also the author of the new book, Abel, The True Story of the Spy They Traded for Gary Powers. Vin, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. It's a delight to be here. So whenever I have an author here for SpyCast, I ask two questions. And the first focuses on inspiration. And all of our authors are fantastic. We wouldn't have them here otherwise. But you really have a unique perspective and a unique inspiration on what led you to write a book about Rudolf Abel. Can you talk a little bit about that? I first came across this story when I was 11 years old. That was the year 1956 when my parents got the first television set that ever came into our house. I was 11 11 years old. Kids' programs were beneath me, except perhaps for The Lone Ranger. Uh, And I wanted to stay up for early and late evening comedy, but I wasn't allowed to. I had to do my homework quite a bit. But So what I saw mainly was news. And in 1957, on the news, I saw this guy with a black straw hat with a white band, a Soviet spy who'd been captured in New York and was going to trial. Wow, you know, this was a real story. I was fascinated by it. They've got illegal spies around. When I was a teenager, 
there was then the spy swap. I'd known, known about the um, U-2 aircraft being shot down. And I must say, I was born and brought up in East Anglia, which was very significant during that stage of the Cold War. A great number of United States Air Force bases uh, flying um, fighters to the Soviet border on a regular basis. We knew that. Um, and then, after the U-2 was shot down, then there was the exchange. So there he was again, this guy going back. Cut to a few more years. I'm working in television production. I'm working in the northeast of England. And we do a series called Stranger Than Fiction. It's regional television where regional stories, which folks are stranger than fiction, come, come up. There was the, um, the stage hypnotist who swindled his mother out of thousands of pounds. Uh, there was the, uh, the member of parliament who was a complete uh, crook. Uh, uh, there was the bank clerk who foretold the robbery of his own bank. And this story, the guy the world knows as Rudolf Ivanovich Abel, was born in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in 1903. His real name was William Fisher. And that was, it was, this story was discovered by a professor, or then just a young researcher. And he'd read a book in Russian, and this book said, da, 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 the spy of the world knows as Abel is really William Fisher. He was born on this date at this address. And the historian, what did he do? He went to the Registrar of Births, Marriages and Deaths, checked it out, and got the birth certificate. So that was the third stage. The hair, the hair standing up on the back of my neck now, because I suddenly thought, it's my story. I've got to write it. Right. And, then, and then I got on a roll. Things happened. People started talking to me. I got, I got anonymous telephone messages. One giving me the... Um, uh, the, tele the Moscow telephone number of Evelyn William Fisher, Abel's only daughter. So, it's, so that's how it started. Right. <laughs> well, it seems like something you can't pass up, right? I mean, it's just being force-fed. I mean, it's, it's, it's growing up and finding out a neighbor was one of the most world-famous spies, yeah. and then all of a sudden you have the phone number of his daughter. Yeah. 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 And so you, you talk about, uh, both in the book and in some of the uh, interviews that you've given, is, is the idea that uh, people were kind of showing you when you got stuck on something, people were kind of guiding you towards open doors and open avenues yeah. to help you continue this research. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Uh, well, that is very interesting. Uh, there's lots there. Um, it's great talking about this in a spy museum because uh, my friends say, you got on a roll. One of my thoughts was, who's controlling me in all this? Because I was getting American sources and they were speaking to me, some of them anonymous. For example, someone sent me the CIA translation into English of Kirill Henkin's book, the book in Russian, that my, uh, now my friend had got the details of the birth certificate. That came anonymously. Hmm. Uh, the telephone number for Evelyn Fisher came anonymously. Uh, and by anonymously, you mean like slipped under your door? Or uh, well, well, the the uh, the text of the Henkin book came by ordinary mail. The telephone number came in a telephone call. Is that Vin Arthi? Yes. You've been after Evelyn Fisher's telephone number? Yes. Have you got a pencil and paper there? <laughs> yes. This is it. Read it back to me. I read it back. Thank you very much. Click. <laughs> I mean, it's his own spy movie in itself, yeah. <laughs> it is. 
One thing, the reason that I was very excited to have you on here is, is maybe there, outside of Abel's family, there are very few people that, that know him better. I know you didn't have sit-down conversation with him, but you really lived his life for as many, many years, because we talked about yeah. the idea of yeah. going back to the 1950s yes. in this case. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about who, who Fisher, let's use yeah. Abel Fisher with it yeah. interchangeably, was as a person, because he comes across to me by reading your book as a true believer in communism. But at the same time, as British as they come. Thank you. That's exactly what I wanted to show. He was a 100% committed ideological communist. You know, that, no question about that. Um, but he was, uh, he was an individual. He, he was hugely intelligent. He was cultured. And someone once said, when you, if your biography is good, or if your history is good, you read, you read, you read, and then you meet the person. Uh, and I found that, that happening. Uh, he, um, he was a genuine man. He believed in what he believed in. He was a kind man. He had family problems like we all have. He had beautiful, uh, a loving family. Um, he, uh, he loved music. He loved reading. I found all this. I found out a lot from his daughter. And let, let me tell you a couple of things mm -hmm. uh, she said. Uh, I once asked uh, um, about, uh, when I visited in, in Moscow, uh, she said something, she said, Vin, all this corruption there is now in this country, she said, it hasn't just happened. She said, communism was corrupt. It was corrupt. It's endemic. And then she said, uh, and English was the language of their home. Fisher has got, had got uh, English, uh, uh, German blood, Russian blood, and probably Russian-Jewish blood, almost certainly Russian-Jewish blood. Uh, he spoke, his mother's language was Russian, his father, a, an ethnic German, his language was German. Uh, he was, his, Fisher's native language was English. He went to school where he learned French and some Latin, so he was bilingual. But English was the language of their home, and it was a sort of haven, a sort of sanctuary. Um, and uh, I was talking to Evelyn about this. She said, uh, Vin, she said, languages are very much like the people who speak them. I said, what do you mean? So she said, German is a very disciplined language. She said, uh, English is a very flexible language. Russian is an anarchic language. And uh, I, I once asked her about Gorbachev as well, you see, uh, because really the Gorbachev-Reagan conversations ended the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, um, what did you make of Mr. Gorbachev, uh, Evelyn? And she said, I heard Mr. Gorbachev make many long speeches, but I never heard him say anything. <laughs> well, he's not the only one that falls into that trap. That's a politician <laughs> for you in many cases. Something that comes across in, in your book in, 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 is that perhaps Abel Fisher um, didn't really regard Russians very highly. And I thought that was very interesting to it, see. It is. It's very, very... It, this is complex. Um, he was not Russian. Right. Uh, he... And, of course, as you know, know so well in spying, you never know the whole story. Mm -hmm. And the whole story never ends. You're always looking and you're always finding out. He was... He joined the Soviet security services because he got married... His new sister-in-law suggested with his skills uh, that would be a good job for him. What do you do when you get married? You, you've got to keep your wife 
uh, in the manner to which he's become accustomed. So you get a job, you know, which is, which is, which is what he did. Uh, I, one of the things you might have picked up is that, um, in, again, in Russian culture, certainly in Soviet culture, but now, the writing of the resume, the biography for every job you go for, and in those days, making sure that you were a, a, from a worker's family, that was so important. And um, when he joined the Red Army, um, where he trained as a radio operator, which is a huge and important part of his work, um, he filled in this form, and one of the sergeants had written in the margin, illiterate in Russian. And he was absolutely furious. Uh, Evelyn talked about it. She said he would, um, he would tease me in the family about Russian. He said, you know, why, why do we have to use masculine and feminine for nouns? It's a nonsense. Um, and on his deathbed, he said uh, his last words to his daughter, and probably his last words ever were, remember, we're Germans. Mm. And I asked her, I said, did he say it in German or English? And she laughed, and she said, he said it in English. <laughs> I think there's really some really fascinating contradictions about about Fisher. One of the ones that jumps out to me from the spy museum is the idea that perhaps he wasn't a particularly good spy. Uh, but at the same time, he was knee-deep in so many of the famous spy cases of the 20th century, and he's found himself around a lot of the important spy and espionage cases. But perhaps he himself wasn't instrumental in pulling off a lot of these cases. Well, I, I, that is an interesting, um, <clears throat> a very interesting and very important point. But then, and here in this museum, you know better than others, what is a spy's job? A spy's job is to do the job that he is required to do, which might be to seduce women, to get stories from their bosses. Uh, it might be to find out particular um, uh, military and weaponry details. I think in Fisher's case, he had a number of jobs. Uh, in his spying career, uh, his Englishness was his first job was in Oslo in Norway, because he had an English passport, a British passport. So his family had used their British passports to go from the United Kingdom to the Soviet Union in 1921, and of course his his passport um, was was open for a number of years. He had to renew it. So he went to the British Embassy in Moscow in the 1930s, told them a story, and got his passport renewed, which enabled him first to go and spy for the Soviet Union in Oslo, where his job was setting up radio transmitters and receivers, and then to go to London in the United Kingdom with a similar uh, job, setting up um, uh, radio receivers and transmitters. Uh, so uh, then in the war, he, his, his radio operation was important. He ran deception games with uh, the Red Army against the, the Nazis. After the war, things begin to change. They didn't know what to do with him. So there was a crisis, uh, a number of crises in KGB, I think. All of this stuff is right. classified. You never get it. So you have to... Uh, what is it? Hunch intelligence. You have to work it out, you know, and, and piece then, everything together. Piece it, from, and, yeah. and what is intelligence? Intelligence is information on which you can act, but it is not evidence that will stand up to cross-examination right. in a court of law. So, uh, it, it, this is piecing it together. I think there was a problem in Moscow, and they didn't quite know what to do with with Fisher. They knew he was reliable, quite boring, um, and. We've got a problem in the United States. Um, they knew about Venona. They knew that the West, the Americans, were, had been reading some of their uh, uh, signals, but they didn't know which ones. Mm -hmm. um, 
the, after the Second World War and really before the 1950s, the, um, the spirings over there had been decimated in some way or been, uh, had been dead for, um, for some years. They needed someone to sort these things out. So he goes over there, he goes over here, comes here, and he has to, he's, a, he's sorting out trouble. He's getting the Cohens out. He's tearing his hair out when the Rosenbergs are found guilty and executed. That really hit the, uh, the Soviets very, very hard. That's something they didn't think would happen over here. Um, and then, and I think this is very significant, Stalin's death, Beria, is head of KGB, right. is arrested, tried, and executed within hours. And the story is that uh, Marshal Zhukov actually shot Beria uh, in the Lubyanka uh, cellars. Can it happen to a more deserving person? Absolutely you know. right. But when you look at that period, then everything's in chaos. Right. Who, do they, who do they trust? So you've got, you've got this guy, Abel, um, or you've got this guy, Fisher, with the code name Mark, uh, using the, um, the alias Emil Goldfuss. Uh, so you've got this guy in New York. What, what are his orders? What's he got to do? So really, he's got to keep the ship on the road. Uh, he's got to keep the, um, the show on the road. So if you look at that, that period, this is what he's doing. He's receiving messages. He's paying people. Why is he in New York? Not Washington? Not Los Angeles? Not San Francisco? I think it's because the United Nations is here. So he can get um, messages to agents from all over the world. Right. And he can pay agents from all over the world in New York. So he's doing this, he's receiving his radio messages, he's transmitting stuff, he's paying people. He's doing a boring administrative job. I think he's a great guy, intelligent, intellectual, lots of skills. They should have had him back in Moscow, training the next generation. But, you know, life isn't like that. Right. So my opinion is he wasn't the master spy. He was just an ordinary Joe doing his job. And, and, and very famously, of course, passing messages and concealment devices like hollowed out nickels, yeah. uh, which will eventually come back to haunt him yeah. in later years. For, for those of you out there uh, who don't know this story, Vin, can you kind of lay down the hollow nickel story and how Abel eventually well, gets rolled up by American law enforcement? Yeah, now this is, uh, is significant. Um, uh, a young lad called Jimmy Bozart, uh, who's a newsboy, in New York, I think, 13, 14 years old. Uh, he, uh, he's going around collecting the, the paper, newspaper money at the end of the week. Got a pocket full of coins. Um, as he was going home, he, a coin drops onto uh, the paving stones, breaks open, and there's a tiny piece of microfilm inside it. He tells his girlfriend. His girlfriend's father is a police officer. So they contact the kid. They take the coin in have a look at it. And significantly, it goes to an FBI officer called Robert J. Lamphere, Bob Lamphere, who is, I think, Jim Donovan, we're going to come to him later, is the great hero of the Cold War, the great Western hero of the Cold War. Lamphere is up there as well. And if Tom Hanks gets a chance to play someone else at some point in the future, uh, Bob Lamphere's the guy. Lamphere looks at it. He'd been very much involved in uh, anti-Nazi intelligence during the uh, the Second World War, and he takes off. And it, there's various various things that come to him uh, in in Lamphere's own book and a wee bit in mine. 
Uh, he goes to it, and he works out that there is a Soviet illegal spy in New York. The FBI cannot give him the resources in staff and money that he needs. So it's left for a, for a number of years. But the, uh, the hollowed-out nickel with the microfilm inside, which was Fisher's assistant, Hay Hanen's welcome to New York. So he'd obviously slipped it in his, looked at it, slipped it in his pocket and paid it for something. Right. It had gone into circulation. Not the best <laughs> tradecraft in the world. No. And this is another thing about Hay Hanen. I mean, um, I hope we're not jumping ahead no, here. No, please. But um, the, the, the thing that, that got Fisher caught, that got Abel caught, was not his name, da, 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 no. it was uh, how weak Hay Hanen was. Hay Hanen defected. And you look at his story, he should never have been sent out of the, out of the Soviet Union. He was completely hooked. He, he was a, a drunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, he couldn't master the languages. So he, he couldn't speak English. In, in court, it was the, the lawyers had a real problem getting him to, uh, to, to, to say anything. And when he said stuff, they couldn't understand it. So he was a guy who should never have been, been deployed. But you know what happens in organizations? And particularly in the Soviet Union, they've got the situation, where's the KGB going? Barry's dead. Um, Khrushchev's secret speech of how, what Stalin had done. You know, what, what do we do? Right. Uh, so they, they don't do anything. They just carry on as if nothing has happened. And they sent this completely hopeless guy uh, to, to the United States. Yeah, I mean, you look at that and, you know, most intelligence agencies send their scrubs to Belize or, you know, somewhere that doesn't have any importance, not necessarily to New York City when that's your arch enemy in the world. Uh, but, of course, it, this leads to the arrest and conviction of Fisher slash Abel. Yeah. Um, and that's where Donovan joins the story yeah. in many respects. And I think what's interesting is, is the prediction that Donovan had at the trial uh, during the sentencing of why not to sentence Abel to a much harsher term than perhaps you would have had otherwise. Um, this, uh, there are a number of things to, to, to say here. Um, one is, and I didn't know this until this particular visit to the United States, that, that Abel himself asked for um, legal assistance from the New York Bar Association. It ha- happened in court. They didn't know what to do about it. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a public defender in that. And he said, Abel said... Um, well, could you approach the New York Bar Association? And Bar, New York Bar Association nominated uh, Jim Donovan. So that's how that came about. And this is where I'd say uh, the Spielberg film, Bridge of Spies, the, uh, the depiction of, by Tom Hanks of Jim Donovan is, is quite superb. And it begins, because Donovan wasn't a criminal lawyer, he wasn't right. an intelligence lawyer, he, he, he wasn't a constitutional lawyer, he was an insurance lawyer, right. and the film begins with him arguing his client's case um, on a road traffic accident, and who was responsible. And he's clear, calm about the language. And then at the end, when he's arguing the, the, the exchange case, the trade case, mm-hmm. you suddenly realize, yeah, this is a lawyer at work. Mm-hmm. So Jim Donovan comes in. Now, the, 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 the story, the drama, here is a guy who's... In, in, in a New York court defending a fellow who is clearly a spy. Right. What does he do? He uses the United States Constitution and the United States law 
to defend his client. The arrest was unconstitutional. It actually goes to the Supreme Court. He eventually loses uh, on a majority decision, majority of one. So his, his legal, his straight, laser-clear legal defense of his client is, is a credit to the United States. Right. It really is. Uh, but then um, Abel is, um, could face the death penalty. And uh, Donovan argues a great deal against that. Almost as an afterthought, Donovan says, one day they might capture one of ours right. and we've got someone to trade. And that's so important. Something else I should mention here. Remember that this man, Abel, this man, Fisher, um, they, what is his name, um, was a British subject. Right. What he was doing was spying for a foreign power who was also um, against the United Kingdom during the Cold War. He was committing treason, which was a capital offence in the United Kingdom. Right. Now, if it had been discovered that Fisher was a British national, he could have been extradited. It, the, the United States could have washed their hands of it. Hey, he's a Brit. Send him over there. Let them sort it out. But how, uh, how would you not... Didn't he have a thick British accent? At the well, time? I'll come to the accent in okay. a moment because, because that, is, that is very, very significant. Yeah. But going back to his wife and daughter who were in Moscow, they knew that situation, were absolutely terrified that his Englishness came out. But your, your, question, mm -hmm. your, your question there. And here again, another great, great performance, the English actor Mark Rylance, who plays Abel in the film. He speaks with a slight Scottish accent. Now, one of the things I've been trying to discover, and you may be able to help me on this, I'd, I've not been able to find out whether anyone who has got an actual recording of Abel's voice, hmm. uh, has the FBI got one and I can't get it through the Freedom of Information Act? I don't know. But we'll have to follow that up. Right. Um, uh, and, of course, this, this, this all happened 50-plus years ago. And you ask people who met him, what, how did he speak his English? And they can't really describe it. But the people at the time said he'd got a kind of Scots-Irish accent. And his cover in New York, but people may not know this, his cover in New York was as a retired um, uh, photography guy and a, a, who was an amateur artist. And he surrounded himself with, with young artists who he, I think, was trying to trying to turn um, you know, onto right. the Soviet cause. But, but he was painting, or, uh, painting all the time. Um, and who is this guy? Why is he talking to us? He was, you know, uh, and he said he, he got his particular accent because he'd been brought up by a Scots-Irish aunt in Boston. Hmm. Okay. In the film, they say he's got this British accent, um, and I think that's a, an error in the film, because right. if they'd really known and that, that he'd had a British passport, I mean, the, 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 it would have turned out very, very, very differently. Right. Absolutely. Uh, but it, what was his acting like? Uh, Rylance in the film uses the sort of art. It sounds almost like Scottish. Now, the Fisher family were, uh, the male type, were politically active in the UK. They had other emigre friends, Soviet, uh, Russian emigre friends, Leninists, in Scotland. Fisher's father was involved in gun running at the beginning of the 20th century to Russian revolutionaries. So the family knew people who spoke their English in a Scots manner. Mm -hmm. uh, he was brought up um, in the north of England where uh, it, 
the accent is, is different from mine, which is a standard southern English accent. Um, and also, in Russian, the R, the R, is pronounced rolled, rather like it is in, in Scottish pronunciation mm. of English. So I think that's where his pronunciation comes from. Yeah, a little bit of an ambiguous accent that no one could place. Yeah. I, must tell, I must tell you, so yeah. there is a... Um, I spoke to Ed Gamba, the, uh, one of the arresting officers, and I asked him about that, and uh, uh, he said um, that, you know, he just got a, a, a sounds like a fairly educated English pronunciation. S- someone else, I've never been able to track this down, and I think it was a, a joke that a British writer somewhere sometime, and part of my work has been to get to the truth. Uh, you know, you, you can never rely on what someone else has said. Right. You've got to get to the truth. Now, um, it, this British writer said... Um, that an, an FBI officer had said he spoke kind of funny. Now, in, in the UK, the Geordie accent in the northeast of England is often the butt of jokes. So I think the English writer who wrote that was, was d- dwelling on that particular point. But I asked a New York lawyer, in fact, Anthony Palermo, of, of whom I must tell you more later, who had actually been a, defend, a, a, a prosecution lawyer at the Abel trial, I asked him that. Uh, he said, but Vin, all New Yorkers speak kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that New York might have been the one place that he could have blended in with Absolutely. everybody else. You know. <laughs> Moving to the Midwest, he would have stuck out like a sore thumb, but who, who knows what people's accents are Absolutely. in New York. So it's, it is the perfect place. Um, I, talk about Abel's art, artistry. Actually, he became a pretty pretty accomplished artists. I mean, we, we here at the museum have several of, of his hand drawings from his uh, jail cell uh, in, in, uh, when he was in captivity. Uh, and he, he was a good cover story if you, you want to pretend that you're going to be an artist, actually being able to do something about it and not drawing like I draw uh, is a good way of, of going about it. I, I want to ask you a little bit about the time that he was in captivity because um, he seemed to have established at least a friendly relationship with his jailers, with the warden. And I think that, that might show a little bit about his personality and in the way that he reacted with those around him. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And maybe this works into the story about the prosecutors as well, like where he was, he never really, he was somebody that made friends, somebody that was personable. I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, the art, I didn't know that the museum had these yeah. Fisher pictures. And before I leave the United States, i got to see them. Uh, and uh, that, that, is, that is significant. That you, there are two things there, Vincent. That, that, uh, there's, the, there's the art and his ability to, to make friends. Uh, the art, he... Uh, this is very interesting. He was born in a part of the northeast of England where the American artist Winslow Homer had uh, lived and painted for a while at the end of the 19th century. Uh, Color coats, Tynemouth, northeast of England. A number of Winslow Homer's paintings of that area are in, of course, United States art galleries and museums all over the country, but particularly in New York and in Brooklyn. So Fisher could actually go to museums and art galleries and see paintings of where he was brought up which is astonishing. Of course, he could never return to that part of England. Um, and he did some spying in London in the 1930s, which was very, very dangerous. Um, we don't know if he was recalled because he'd been recognized by, by someone. Uh, 
So art was really big in his life. He actually, um, the, the Fisher home, had some pictures that uh, he'd drawn and painted in England and taken to Moscow as a teenager in the 1920s. Mm. So he kept it up. And one of the things he said at the end of his life, um, he, wasn't, he, he was a depressive. He was unhappy about so many things. And one thing was, um, what, if you knew what was going to happen in your life, you would take a rope and hang yourself. Uh, and he said, um, rather than go into this spying business, I'd like to have gone into the Academy of Arts. So th there was that, that, that element uh, to it. So painting um, was important. And uh, his, his work, I've shown it to art critics, and they say he's better than a naive artist. He's not a great artist, but he was going places. He was, he was taught to paint in oils when he was in New York. Uh, he had never painted in oils. Right. So this is hugely important. And as you were saying, these sketches he did in prison. What he did? The, he did the prison Christmas cards. He he did a post, He did posters. He did so, he, he did drawings for the prison uh, prisoners' newspapers. All of this sort of stuff. Um, and again, going back to the Bridge of Spies, the Spielberg film, the you can see that th there is a relationship that develops between Donovan and Abel. They, they both regard each other as significant men. Uh, there's no friendship there, um, but they, they do see... Uh, there's a mutual respect. Uh, that's the term. Yeah. There is a mutual respect. And you, you see that throughout Fisher's life. I have to tell you, um, uh, on my research, um, I visited Mostar on a couple of occasions. And uh, again, the, the retired KGB guys really wanted to help. And um, I met with uh, um, General Vasily Dojdalov. He had been the control officer of the Portland spy ring in, in, in the UK, uh, um, uh, Gordon Lonsdale, right. those guys. And I talked a bit, and uh, I, I said, everything, uh, how would you describe um, uh, Willie Fisher? And he said um, he was a good man. Uh, he was an intellectual man. Uh, he was respected by his comrades uh, and those he worked with. Uh, he was kind. Um, he, he was admired. And I said, everyone says that. And he said, well, it would be a surprise if I said differently, wouldn't it? <laughs> I want to skip ahead a yeah. little bit to, to talk about uh, once both powers and Abel are in custody in the other respective yeah. countries, uh, the, the negotiations that, that began between the two countries, and, and in, in some cases under the guise of being from Rudolf Abel's wife, Mrs. Abel, which yeah. was clearly not, or at least it was, the pen was guided very strongly yeah. by the intelligence agencies. Can you talk a little bit about how the back and forth, how the negotiations went? Because according to your book and according to history from other places, the minute powers is shot down, there's conversations about this. And maybe the movie doesn't quite get into that yeah. concept. But, you know, this wasn't something that James Donovan said, hey, why don't we trade the yeah. two? That was an instantaneous reaction. Um, again, going back to the film, of course, uh, I, I've been involved in filmmaking. And, again, I pay credit to, to the master, Steven Spielberg. A complex story... Um, has to be told in a couple of hours on right. film. So some things are squeezed up. So the negotiations are actually squeezed up in the film. It didn't. So look, um, uh, 
Fisher Abel is, uh, goes to jail in 1957. He's not swapped until 1962. Uh, someone goes to prison. Uh, rel- he can't be visited by his family, but he can exchange mail with his family. Or can he? Donovan, um, for, he, he says to Donovan he, he's not getting letters from his family, or he, you know, that, and Donovan works on his behalf. And then there begins to be you know, Mrs. Abel writes, and so the, the, the correspondence between husband and wife starts. Right. Um, they, then, when Powers is shot down and uh, is in prison, the Powers family immediately remember what's happened at the trial and say, look, is there something we can do here? And then this really does begin to move quickly because... Mrs. Abel, and I'm making the quotes right. in, in inverted commas. The, the listeners out in podcast world do not see the air quotes that are made around Mrs. Abel, but we all understand what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Abel saying, um, you know, um, can we contact the Powerses and um, look, isn't this an opportunity and, and so on. And so the, the letters from Mrs. Abel to her husband and to Jim Donovan at this point, uh, are clearly written by the KGB. Um, But, of course, remember the German context. Um, East Germany, as you know from the Spy Museum, is is key in the Cold War. Germany is key in the Cold War. Um, And so the fact that there is German language and German blood in this really helps. Uh, So the letters are exchanging, and... Really, that's what brings it closer together and, and, and faster. So, uh, clearly, the United States government and the Soviet government are corresponding through second and third and fourth right. parties, but they are controlling this exchange and bringing the, the exchange closer. In, in reality, then, when Donovan goes to Germany to make the final preparation, that is the very end of these long negotiations. Yes. That is kind of just finishing things yes. off. Yeah. I think one thing that's interesting, and you, you talk about this in your book as well, is Abel's life after he goes back to the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, to a degree, he's used by the KGB as a trainer, but he, I, I, it comes across as he's not particularly happy about how his life has ended up. Now, he's overjoyed that he's reunited with his family finally. It had been almost a decade, yeah. seven, eight years. But what they do with him afterwards is not necessarily... He doesn't have satisfaction later in his life, if I'm reading it right. Can you talk a little bit about that? You're reading it exactly right. I do, uh, I do want people to read my book, uh, Vincent. So well, I'm, right. I'm, I'm not... So, I, uh, hold on. Hold on. There's so, secrets I haven't <laughs> talked about. <laughs> there are secrets you haven't talked about. And there is one secret I will not give away okay. in answering this question. Um, now, yeah, his life was... Now, now, you know better than anyone in this museum that uh, a spy who's been incarcerated in the country where he has been spying for, it, for his, his own government, can never really be trusted again. Mm. What has he said? So there was that. But the KGB, so really, the, the, the Fisher arrest was a mess. I mean, right. it, it was a complete fiasco, a chaos. It should never have happened. They, and of course, they lied like mad. He's not one of our... All of that stuff right. that you know about. But as this unrolled, they suddenly realized they'd got a public relations um, success on their hands. Here was a guy that everyone thought was, was straight, honest, honorable. Um, and so back in the Soviet Union, they found this as well. 
And so they sent him round to schools to talk to kids about you know, the great Soviet Union, head in the space race, mm. all, of, all of this stuff. Um, they sent him to East Germany, to Hungary, to help train their in, intelligence officers. Um, but uh, he was... Un, uh, back at the Lubyanka, um, he, had a, he had a chair. He didn't have his own desk... Uh, he didn't really have a job. They called him in if something happened. You know, wh- what might the Americans be thinking about this? Right. What about that? And so on. But it was an unhappy time for him. Uh, he he enjoyed his life at home with his family, but um, but uh, espionage wise, he was finished, uh, and he was used, and he knew. Well, it is a fascinating story, and again, we don't want to give away anything else. Uh, but Vin Arthi is the author of the new book, which is based on an earlier book, which yes. is based on decades of research, <laughs> called Able, The True Story of the Spy They Traded for Gary Powers. Vin, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings. And thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here. Your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.